Hello everyone and welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's as we begin a new series for the Gospel of Matthew. We just studied the Sermon on the Mount and the particularities of what Jesus is teaching us about living into this kingdom of heaven logic. And now we're going to actually talk about how Matthew has Jesus revealing the kingdom of heaven through parables and stories. Our sermon series topic is called Making It Real. Um, and we're looking at how the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is revealed in some of the second part of Matthew. So first, let's overview the Gospel of Matthew a little bit more. Now, according to Eugene Boring, Matthew can be actually broken into two parts. We've got part one, which are chapters one through 12, which explain to us the basic conflict that is set up by Jesus, his incarnation, his birth. Um, the conflict between the kingdoms of this world, the empires, the rulers, um, even the kingdoms of religion in this world, and the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven, as I said, is a major theological concept of the Gospel of Matthew. It's alluded to again and again, not just in the Gospel of Matthew, but Matthew picks it up from the allusions found in the Old Testament, particularly in some of the books of the prophets. Now we see that this kingdom of heaven has been ushered in with the birth of the Messiah that was waited for in the Old Testament. Um, we see the conflict begin from the very beginning of Matthew as he sets up the genealogy of Jesus, which harkens back to the line of kings and the line of King David, which is instantly then put in opposition to the kingdom of this world, which is represented by Herod. When the Magi come and say, we are looking for the king of the Jews, and Herod is threatened by this new power that is being born, and and not only is is threatened by it, but asks for all of the babies to be killed to ensure that no king rises up from the Jewish people. In that very beginning in chapter three, Jesus as a baby, as a child, a toddler, instantly becomes an, an immigrant as he runs and flees with his family into exile into Egypt. So we, we from the very beginning see this polarization, the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of this world. Now we see that especially expressed in the first chapters of the Sermon on the Mounts that we've discussed for the last six weeks. It heralds the conflicts that we see that when we live and abide by the kingdom of heaven and the rules and the logic that Jesus is ushering in, the fulfillment of the law, which is the fulfillment of God's will and heart, it is going to set us up as different than the world and different expectations of the world. And we see this that, that it's set up in a conflict that much like with King Herod in the very beginning, the kingdoms of this world function out of selfishness, oppression, violence, and greed, while kingdoms of heaven, where Jesus is our ruler, is a nonviolent world, a non-retaliatory world, a world that lives for the best and the equality of all people, and whose first and most authoritative law and rule is the law and rule of love. That's the first part of Matthew. <clears throat> now in 12 through 28, the second part of Matthew, we see the escalation of this conflict. And then we also see the resolution of the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of the world. As Jesus and his disciples begin moving and teaching in community, as their community begins to build and his fame begins to build, it leads just like in the book of Mark to opposition against Jesus. 
the, the religious rulers, the kingdom of the empire begins to feel threatened by Jesus's growing popularity and his teachings that are reversing how things work in the world that they have created. And so this threat then comes, of course, from the Roman authorities and from the Jewish leaders, and and they face off in the and the ultimate conflict of power, which leads to Holy Week and the cross. And ultimately, we find the resolution of this war when the kingdom of God wins in resurrection. Now, before we jump into Jesus's kingdom of heaven scriptures found in the second part of Matthew, let's stop for a minute and let's just claim the difficulty that we as 21st century Americans especially have with this this rule or world or, uh, excuse me, this, this, this use of the word kingdom. Granted, we are not necessarily familiar in our culture with kings and queens and kingdoms, monarchies, except in the negative connotation that we have in our history. The negative connotation that we actually associate with our past, with imperial conquest, with colonialism, with kingdoms that took away land and rights and freedoms, especially from native communities and or marginalized communities. And it's a word that, honestly, the modern church struggles with today, especially mainline Protestant churches. Um, How do we use those words of kingdom and and kingship when historically those, those authoritative powers of this world have done so much harm? Many churches have actually gone to using the word kingdom to talk about it the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Now, St. Luke's, as leaders, we've wrestled with this idea for many years. In fact, for 20 plus years, our mission statement has been, was originally building the kingdom by building disciples. And over the last five years, we've changed that to awakening disciples to reveal the kingdom and revealing the kingdom to awaken disciples. We believe that, that that mission, that purpose statement is circuitous in time. And, and we replaced the word building with awakening and revealing because we felt that lived more into our Wesleyan heritage. Um, building kind of makes us feel like it's something that we do, that we start and we end it. That unless it's the eye for eyesore, um, there is eventually an end to the work of building and construction, um, which doesn't really fit with our Wesleyan heritage. We use the idea of awakening because it's the Holy Spirit awakening the Imago Dei, um, the image of God with in us through provenient grace. The work of awakening awakening something is that there is something within us that God is continually through the power of the Holy Spirit enlivening and awakening through the work of sanctification, sanctifying grace in our life. And then we use the word revealing because because really it's it's the Holy Spirit's work through us and in us that reveals the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God that's already now and not yet. It's this idea from the Celtic tradition that we live in thin spaces and that and that there are moments or experiences in our lives, um, not just in our church, but in the world where we're pulling back the curtain and we see glimpses of what will be when the kingdom of God comes to reign here on earth and God's sovereign power is held. So that's our kind of understanding that we we want to hold on and reclaim this, that word kingdom, just like we want to reclaim words like evangelical, um, so that we can really live into the foundation of what we believe and what Jesus taught us as different and separate from the way the world is. Now, let's look at the Matthew at Matthew's gospel. Now, as I already said, the kingdom of heaven 
is derived from prophetic allusions found in the Old Testament. The idea of the kingdom of heaven is that it's the moment when God's sovereign power is at work among us. It's the original intention from the beginning of creation. It is the the revelation that we hope for where in Revelation 21, it promises that, that Christ will come again, that God will be among us and make his place among us and there will be no tearing, no crying, no mourning anymore. It's what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, Matthew's gospel uses the term kingdom of heaven more than any other gospel. In fact, the words kingdom or king are used more than 77 times in Matthew's gospel. And I believe it's 71 of those times refer to this dynamic now and not yet theological concept that is so central to Jesus and Jesus's teaching in Matthew's gospel. Now, because Matthew is speaking to a predominantly Jewish population, a Jewish church, Matthew is the only one that uses the word church, we understand that the readers who would have been reading it for the first time, they would have been familiar with Mark's gospel. It would have been the first source material for Matthew to write his. But they were also being persecuted, pressed in upon, not only by the Roman Empire, but Jews who believed they needed to follow all the Jewish customs and the Jewish law, even as followers of Jesus. So Matthew uses this imagery from the very beginning of the story to help his church see that Jesus is simply the continuation of of the Old Testament prophecies, of the Old Testament laws, of the story that Jesus, that God began to write in the Jewish people from the very beginning of time. And he uses the words kingdom of heaven, which is interchangeable with kingdom of God, But he uses heaven because his Jewish audience would have not customarily been used to pronouncing the divine name of Yahweh. And so kingdom of heaven was something that was not only a concept, but something that they could embrace and see among them. Now, this particular Sunday coming up is the Sunday where we celebrate in the Christian year Pentecost. Pentecost is the story of the birth of the church through the gift of the Holy Spirit that comes and waits and sits upon the disciples who are waiting after Jesus's ascension. But we're also going to be taking not only that Acts account, but looking at um, different parable teachings that teach us about and describe the kingdom of heaven. So if you continue on um, after this lecture and listen to our office hours podcast, the clergy and staff are going to be talking about Pentecost, the power of the church, and you're also going to get an update on our denomination. So we hope you'll listen. But let's continue with our scripture for this week from Matthew's gospel. Now, if the Sermon on the Mount invited all who follow Jesus, uh, Jesus, who is the King of Kings, invited us to live into a daily intentional vision of the kingdom of heaven and to live into a kingdom of heaven logic as our citizenship in our daily life, then then these stories we're going to share over the next few weeks reveal what that kingdom of heaven can look like among us. We're going to start with chapter 13 where the gospel writer parallels the gospel of Mark's parables. And Jesus in this gospel repeats the parables, but adapts them and changes them for his particular context, which is the work that we try to do in our daily life as well. So chapter 13 begins with a familiar parable of the sower and the seeds. 
But um, this week, it's going to lead into the anniversary of the birth of the church and the gift of the Holy Spirit. We wanted to move past the first parable that's so familiar in 13, straight into some smaller parables of the kingdom of heaven found in verses 31 through 33. Hear these words. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make its nest in its branches. And then he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Jesus uses two comparisons. He continues the agricultural imagery with the mustard seed and then moves into what seems like a very simple baking analogy. But but both of these, as simple as they may seem on its face value, hold so much more and push us as the church to understand the kingdom of heaven in new and profound ways. First, continuing with that agricultural imagery, Jesus actually used this kind of hyperbolic, imaginative imagery of of a small seed that becomes a large bush or plant. Now, it's interesting. He doesn't say it becomes a tree, although those who would have heard it would have understood that, that Jesus was being a bit satirical. Jesus is comparing the kingdom of heaven to something that would have been very knowledgeable in the kingdoms of this world. You see, the imperial tree was used as a symbol of worldly kingdoms and empires and dynasty. Jesus knew that those that would have been listening to the story would have instantly thought of the imagery in the Old Testament that compared political kingdoms to a great strong key tree, just as the imagery of Babylon was used as a tree standing at the center of the earth in the book of Daniel. Now with that in mind, we have to go back a few weeks to what Dr. McGee taught us about the Mathean concept, this idea that what is logical in matters of this world are turned upside down in the kingdom of heaven logic. So while Jesus uh, talks about the kingdom of heaven becoming, going from a seed and growing into a plant, it's turning upside down this idea of the empire's mighty tree. This idea of the political kingdom is turned upside down with this, with this thought, this, this imaginative, sacred imagination, hyperbolic idea that this little tiny mustard seed would become a plant, a plant so big and so strong, probably six to eight feet a bush would become so strong that, that, that birds would find their nests and their shelter in it. You see, because the kingdom of heaven is not like the kingdom of this world. The picture of strength and power comes from what would be considered by this world the smallest and lowliest and most unbelievable of shelter places. Now, if we continue with Matthew's concept of the kingdom of heaven, turning upside down the logic of this world, that's how we find the woman. A woman who puts a little bit of yeast into three measures of flour. Now, some some say that the three measures of flour would have been like 10 gallons of flour. It would have been enough flour that when it was finally leavened with the yeast, it would make bread to feed 150 or more 
people. And what's interesting is that it eludes the listeners, reminds them of that Old Testament story of Sarah. Remember when Sarah, we studied this, when Sarah was visited by the three visitors who came to to proclaim that God's promise would come true in her. She leavened three gallons or three measures of flowers in order to feed them and show them hospitality. But it's interesting because in Matthew's telling of this familiar parable, the woman actually doesn't knead the dough or mix the dough. She does actually nothing with the yeast. In fact, yeast is normally used in Paul and other writings as a negative connotation. It's used as a, as a term for the contamination of the Pharisees or the contamination of the kingdoms of this world. But Jesus takes it and says that the woman hides it just simply hides the yeast among this 10 gallons worth of flour and that God does the rest of the work, producing enough leavened bread to feed an army. Now at first, we might think that the use of these parables on Pentecost would tell us that this is the work of the church, that the work of church, the smallest little ministry that we do grows and spreads in time and becomes a, a force for the bread of life to feed many people or becomes a, a sheltering place for those who are looking for their home. And while there is truth in that, to just take it as this metaphor of growth for the church is to miss the point of the kingdom of heaven. From Jesus, what, God, what Jesus is saying about God is that God and God's power is at work in mysterious ways, in ways that are often hidden and um, unable to even be perceived by the human eye or even the human heart. But our inability to see it our inability to, to know or be aware that it's there does not negate its power. That God is at work in ways that will continue to replicate and expand in extravagant, mysterious, and unexpected ways the kingdom of heaven among us on earth as it is in heaven. And that God does that, that the kingdom of heaven expands in these powerful ways, even without us being able to see it, even without us doing anything to prove that God's power and God's sovereignty is indeed at work in this world and that nothing will stop it in coming to fruition of the, among us here on earth until the final consummation when Christ comes again and we feast not at a heavenly banquet alone, but when, when God's sovereignty and power and that original vision for all of us as humanity living as one comes and meets us on earth as it is in heaven. It's a lot to think about. It's a different way to think about two very small parables, a little mustard seed and a little bit of yeast. God is doing mysterious and powerful work so I want to leave you with this thought as we move towards the celebration of Pentecost on this Sunday. Let me ask you, in what ways have you seen the kingdom of God at work? Not just in the church, but more importantly, in the world, in your life, in, in the everyday, where it's, where it's almost hidden from a world that, that really likes to believe that God and the power of God's kingdom is irrelevant. Where have you seen it at work? 
What does the, the kingdom of heaven look like among us in the world today, in our church, in our relationships, even in our own families and workplaces? And have we maybe considered, without thinking about it, that we think the kingdom of God is, a, is about us doing the work? And have we forgotten to depend and believe and see what God is doing and how we can move in to be a part of it? I hope you'll take some time and read chapter 13 of Matthew. Stay on afterwards and listen to our Office Hours podcast as we talk about what Pentecost means to all of us. Um, and also what's going on in the Methodist Church and how maybe, maybe, when the world sees things as schisms, maybe God is doing a mysterious work of Pentecost, even amongst us. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's. We're actually filming this on Aldersgate Day. May, 20, May 24th. May 24th, which Aldersgate Day is... Clergy, someone, do you want to jump in the, there? The day that John Wesley's heart was strangely, was strangely warmed. warmed. Yeah. Why yeah. was not, it strangely Not normally warmed, strangely warmed. Why was it yeah. strangely warmed? Because he had an experience of the Holy Spirit uh, that overwhelmed him and he found novel. Is that's, that a good <laughs> That's good. That's good. And we say that because we're going to be talking about Pentecost and the scripture of Pentecost today and the church. So it's a perfect segue into what is going to be our scripture for this week, which is Acts 2. We're also going to be talking about Matthew. If you listen to the scripture earlier, um, Kingdom of Heaven parables for the next few weeks. But we're also going to celebrate Pentecost this Sunday, which is the day in which the Holy Spirit arrived um, and empowered the disciples to be able to speak the good news of the gospel. It says, after when Pentecost Day arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound from heaven, like the howling of a fierce wind, filled the entire house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be individual flames of fire alighting on each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. So let's talk about Pentecost. And what does it mean that Pentecost is the birth of the church? Mm. So for me, when I think about Pentecost, I think about it like Jesus's experience of going into the temple after being tempted in the wilderness, right? So he goes into the temple and he reads uh, from Isaiah and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because, right? And he gives these kind of two uh, 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 ways that he knows. He says, I've been anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, right? And I've been sent to proclaim freedom to the imprisoned, to uh, preach recovery of sight to the blind, and to set the oppressed free. And so mm -hmm. I think that uh, when we look at uh, Pentecost as that experience for the church, it's when the church was anointed, mm -hmm. sent, and empowered to do the work of setting others free, to do the work of making disciples, making disciples and revealing the kingdom. Right, because mm -hmm. that what you described there is really the catalyst for what is the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. It's when it's when the captives are set free. It's right. when justice is proclaimed. Right. It's when when the world becomes as it was meant to be mm -hmm. when Christ, when the Holy Spirit and God started the world, yeah. um, which is what the Sermon on the Mount Jesus has been telling us: live in these ways, and the Holy Spirit and the and the kingdom of heaven will be revealed. Mm -hmm. What about for you all? <clears throat> well, I think. I always, when I think about the Pentecost story, it, you know, obviously I look at it from a lay perspective, right? And I think that if I put myself in the place of the people in the story, mm. right, I'm probably pretty freaked out. 
<laughs> you know, I've, I've lost my teacher. Right. He, but, and I don't really know what's going on. And, and my understanding of the church is that, well, without the teacher, there's nothing going on. Mm. Right. And it's sort of this modern understanding, modern meaning now, understanding that the people are the church. We do the work. It's important to have a teacher and it's important to have these lessons, but that the teacher isn't the end all and the be all of the work that the church does. And I think that that's that moment that, you know, we, we in Mark, we talked so much about how just like, y'all, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go. And, and they just <laughs> didn't get it. And, and this is this is sort of that reminder of like, no, no, I told you, but that you were getting ready. It, w- it was boot camp. It was an opportunity for you to get ready for just this moment. Mm. That's awesome, Karen. The power of the laity mm-hmm. is more important. We're, our job is simply to help you sure. lead your life with the story. You are the primary theologian in your life. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think to, to piggyback on that is, is also then the reminder that while there is a passing of the baton mm-hmm. that kind of happens at Pentecost um, in some ways, there is also the reminder of the presence of the Spirit mm-hmm. that Jesus in physical form has gone and yet does not leave us alone. Right, right. you're not Jesus alone. Jesus continues to be with us. God continues to be with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and that looks different. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that is a different kind of empowerment than a teaching. So there was teaching and now there's this empowerment to, to, that, that comes from within in some ways. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. I think there's also that, uh, so you had Jesus walking around as both God and humanity, right? Walking around as like a kingdom in one place at a time. Mm-hmm. And so then you, once again, have the passing of the baton of know where the, the spirit of God is in all people of faith, mm-hmm. right? So you have that humanity and that divinity kind of in one space, not in yeah. one space, but in several spaces, doing the work of spreading the kingdom uh, just just on a, on a larger scale physically, if that makes sense. And it looks yeah. different, right? Yeah. They, they, the, the talking about the people speaking in tongues mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and not necessarily being able to understand each other, that it doesn't look just one way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that God is in all places, the Holy Spirit is in all places, and it's understood and it's heard and it's received mm-hmm. in all different ways. Mm-hmm. I think would be so powerful when you have been following a specific teacher. Mm-hmm. You have been living your religion in a specific way to see, oh, there's lots of shades to this rainbow. There's lots of shadow. There's lots of light. Mm -hmm. It is not just this one thing. And we get so hung up on the speaking in tongues and what does that mean? And what does that mean for us and all that and miss the exact thing that you just said, the metaphor that it's actually giving us Mm -hmm. for the breadth of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. It's actually a kingdom metaphor, not necessarily a literal, you know, in that moment. It's fresh expressions, right? It's it's (laughs) new communities. It's, Uh It's all of these new ways that we come up with in church and in denominations to talk about the ways that people meet and encounter the divine that, that is laid out sort of so clearly and so um, basically in the scriptures. So I wonder, considering all of that, what will we say that the Holy Spirit is doing in the church today? How do we see uh, the presence and work and the movement of the Holy Spirit in, in, in the church that we serve today as modern believers? 
Well, I mean, I think we were just talking about it before we started, right? Mm -hmm. It's the excitement of the new people that are that are joining the church, mm -hmm. that are finding their faith and finding God in new ways, right? Mm -hmm. Not for the first time necessarily, but experiencing the love and the community of church um, in some ways for the first time, but in some ways brand new. I think I see it in the ways that <clears throat> as we move into June and we're getting ready to, um, to honor and to remember Paltz, um, I think of the ways that, that like the One Paltz Foundation and has joined with us, has invited us to really to come with them on a journey mm -hmm. every year to let's talk about faith. And, and the theater community has reached out to us and said, hey, help us with Gopar. Mm -hmm. And the different ways that we're finding the community in their secular form, which I don't, I don't really like that division between the secular and the sacred because again the holy spirit is everywhere like right. you said um but we're being invited into spaces um that the church is not normally being invited to yeah. and and while i'd love to say that's because of the reputation that lynette field started with missions and bill barnes and and all of that is true however it's also the holy spirit mm -hmm. and it's only the holy spirit that can do those things and and when you latch onto that power, you go with it. You go, okay, all right. If we're gonna go there, we're gonna go there. It's awesome. And that takes a that takes a form of humility that that while while we can do a lot and while we while we do a lot and while we set up a lot and we plan a lot and we, you know, we we strategize and all of that, at the end of the day, that that's, that w is gonna fall flat if we're not open to how the spirit is then moving. Because mm -hmm. um, there can, there, we could have had some great ideas for all of the things you just described of how we were gonna right. celebrate Pulse and how we were, we were gonna do that. And it could have been about us mm -hmm. and us doing you know, ministry with the arts community and us making sure that we celebrate Pulse, but there's an element of having to be open to the Holy Spirit to be open to to, to these other voices and to these other, and, and letting ourselves be directed by, by something outside of ourselves and recognizing right. that just because it's not a church entity doesn't mean that it's not spirit moved. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, you know, listening to the Holy Spirit in 2011, 2012, when we started the vision of, of uh, uh, community transformation mm -hmm. and how are we gonna, you know, go into, and, and even before that, when we started to go into the school system and impact was created, those were Holy Spirit movements that felt really big and, and crazy ideas. Like how do we go into one community and help, help transform a community? But we followed and trusted the Holy Spirit was leading us. And that leading and that trust then invited us to another destination and another destination. And, and so it's a leap of faith, too, to follow the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. um, and it's being willing to, the Holy Spirit empowers you, but it's also us understanding and, and being deeply embedded in our relationship with Jesus Christ that makes us go, okay, I'll trust this. Mm -hmm.
I, I always say the Holy Spirit is the part of the Trinity that we believe the least in. Mm -hmm. um, because mm -hmm. to believe in the Holy Spirit yeah. is a very intangible thing that is very much about trust. Yeah. Um, you know, believing in Jesus, yep, I got some stories, I got, you know, some really clear like words of his. Um, to believe in God, creator, absolutely sounds great. Yeah. Holy Spirit that is actually messing with my life now. Right. That's a little that's a little less comfortable. But it captures our imagination though, mm. right? Absolutely. It's, it's it we read about it in mythology with the muses and you know, <laughs> that spark of imagination. It's it's all sort of the wrestling with the understanding of what the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit is doing and how the Holy Spirit impacts us in what we do every day. How do I understand this thing that is so fleeting and is so magical, for lack of a better word? Mm -hmm. How do I wrap my mind and my thoughts and my experience around this thing that can be so quick, but so all-encompassing. Especially in a kind of theological and then thought landscape, not necessarily here, but just across the board where theological imagination isn't necessarily encouraged, right? Uh, there's often this set path and this set understanding of things that we need to stick to. So how do we do that? How do we then connect with the Holy Spirit or, or listen to its leaning when, um, there isn't a lot of concrete, this is, this is what it sounds like, this is what it does, right. you know what I mean? Um, and, how do, and how do we then go? <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's just so funny to say that theological imagination is not encouraged when, when from the beginning we have a God that spoke in poetry and story. How did we get there? How did we get to the point yeah. where, right. where we become anyway. really rigid? Right? That's, where exactly. we, that's probably it's a different podcast. Right. How do we get from Balthazar's not being led by the Spirit? Right? Yeah, right? Not, being yeah. not being led by the Spirit has, has, has kind of backed us into this corner where we're not allowed to think and imagine and uh, what our faith could be and how God could be yeah. working in our lives. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, but and I mean, I think that that kind of takes us into our next question, right? Of <laughs> if we're imagining what can be and what should be and, mm. and where we think that God's leading us, you know, I'll. I'll throw on my laity hat and speak for all of us, what the heck is happening in the United Methodist Church right now? <laughs> well, Karen, we're glad you asked that question because we've sort of kind of been holding in a holding pattern about how to talk about what's going on in our denomination because it really doesn't affect us right now. Um, but people are wondering. So mm -hmm. let's, let's, let's talk about that. Well, let's unpack it. To, to say to, to begin with, it's a complicated question and it's a complicated answer. And we've had that kind of question of like, well, why can't we just, and fill in the blank after right. just, but you know, one of the things that is, I think one of the greatest historical strengths and the thing that is one of our greatest challenges is that we are a connectional church and we are a global church. Um, I've told people, you know, we can't fully compare ourselves to Lutherans and Presbyterians and Episcopalians. The closest comparison would be the Catholic Church, actually, that that has this connectional global mm -hmm. thing that that we have said being together and making decisions together and being in connection with one another. Um, 
sometimes takes precedence over efficiency. <laughs> um, right. but, but to say that it's important for us to be connected, that, that it's important for us to be in relationship and to, to make decisions that aren't just about one context or one group of people. And so um, that, that's, a, that's an important framework. While you know, some of our St. Lukers, you know, your, your experience may only be here with St. Luke's. To be part of St. Luke's is to be part of something that is, is global right. um, because we have these connections all over the world. And that has a history from the very beginning when the Wesley brothers started the Methodist movement mm -hmm. of, of the tension between, if you want to use these categories, it's, it's, I don't really like these categories because I think we're, we're both of these things because we're Methodists, mm -hmm. but the tension between evangelical, mm -hmm. between what was a revivalist movement, a Holy Spirit inspired movement out of the Anglican church mm -hmm. that the Wesleys felt and their methodical Anglican Orthodox ways. Yep. So, so this, there's always from the beginning been this tension between this revival of the spirit and how do you capture that and this evangelical movement and the more than conservative or, or I wouldn't even say conservative, more orthodox, intellectual, like you just said, how do we frame this? These are the doctrines, these are the beliefs. And we've always held those together and we've had people, you know, social holiness and personal holiness. We, we've held that together until the last 40 years. Mm -hmm. And in the last 40 years, from political outside activists, honestly, yep. if we're really, really honest, it came this movement into Protestant denominations of a more conservative viewpoint and a more literal reading of the scripture, especially around human sexuality. And before that, we did have LGBTQ pastors. Right. And they were, were living their life and they were speaking. And then this movement that really came from the outside of the church into our church came and said, no, we need to, we need to be much more literal in our understanding of scripture, which had never been how we as Methodists read scripture. Um, and, and sort of made this, the inclusion of LGBTQ people the primary issue of our general conference debate for the last 30, 40 years. Our faith all together. Yeah. If it felt like a, just our connection all together. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And it's really yeah. around whether LGBTQ people, it is not around their sacred worth. Right. Because that every, all people are of sacred worth. It mm -hmm. says that. It's around whether or not, a question of sanctification. If you are an, an LGBTQ person, you, sh you shouldn't be ordained, is what, is what some are saying. You should not follow a call to ministry and be ordained if you are practicing, which I don't really understand what that means. But anyway, <laughs> um, and you should not be married. We should not do same gender. Clergy should not do same gender, perform same gender weddings mm -hmm. in the church. Mm -hmm. So it's really those three things. Ordination, same gender marriage, whether or not clergy can perform them, whether or not they can be, happen in the church. Mm -hmm. um, and we have become, over the last 30 years, those have been added into our discipline and we've become more and more and more and more, if you want to use the word conservative, which I believe we are conservative. We conserve our traditions mm -hmm. and the best of our traditions and we're evangelical mm -hmm. too. So that's what it comes down to. We're at a point where you can only vote on those things every four years at General Conference right. because it's a part of our polity. And delegates from around the world come together to vote on that. In 2019, we went to a very traditionalist 
plan where those three items became even more stringent. There was a resistance movement that rose up. We were waiting for General Conference 2020 to happen. Um, and then, and then we, 2020 happened. And then 2020 <laughs> happened. And, and had 2020 General Conference happened, those things would have been removed. And those who read the, the scripture more literally would have gone and started their new denomination then. 2020 happened, COVID, it was postponed. It was postponed again. Recently, we were supposed to meet this fall to have that decision made. And because of the inequity of vaccines around the world, and because of the inability for people in other countries to be able to get visas to come, um, which we've experienced with people here at St. Luke's, um, they postponed General Conference and the decision-making body again till 2024. The more literalist reading of scripture people have decided we can't wait anymore and we wanna st we, we're ready for our own Pentecost moment. Mm -hmm. And so they've decided um, in their good conscience and based on their understanding of the Holy Spirit and, and that sacred imagination mm -hmm. to go and begin their own denomination. It began on May 1st, mm -hmm. it's called the Global Methodist Church. It does not change anything about United Methodism. Mm -mm. And, and there is some contention and kind of uh, family discussions, to put it mildly, happening regarding pensions and property. Mm -hmm. um, but that will be settled and we will get to a place. Um, I think it's a positive thing. I think whenever the Holy Spirit leads a group of people to go start a new denomination, they should be allowed to go do it and live into the fullness of what they believe the Holy Spirit is leading them to do, which allows us to stay United Methodist and be and live into the fullness and eventually take those out. Doesn't mean everyone has to agree mm -hmm. on, on marriage or ordination. It doesn't mean all churches have to receive an, an, an LGBTQ ordained person. It just means there's freedom, which has always been who we are as Methodists. And I think the way that you describe that, Jen, is so good because I, I keep hearing, well, are we splitting? Is there a schism? Is this going to be, be a split of the church? And, and it's not. It's not a split of the church at all. It never was a split of the church. Uh, it is a group of people who are following what they believe, um, like you said, to be their Pentecost moment. Right. Um, they, they believe that they have you know, something that they need to go do that, that within our current denomination, they are not going to be able to, to to, to live out and um, and it, it frees them to do that and and keeps them from from holding a group of people hostage that that is ready to move forward with something and and God willing it frees us to live fully into who we as St. Luke's have been for a long time mm -hmm. but but we as the United Methodist Church um, can can now become and and many places have been living into for a long time because it, it it's exciting to me because when you look at the history of Methodism right. part of the reason that I am Methodist part of the reason that that many of us sit actually everyone sitting up here can be a leader in the church because the Methodist movement throughout right. history has been a movement of of progression. I'm not even going to say progressive, but looking mm -hmm. at expanding who is included and who is affirmed, and to see see the breadth of of uh, 
of, of what God's kingdom actually looks like. Um, you know, we, we went through some family squabbles around the Civil War about right. um, whether or not if you are a bishop, you should own slaves. Right. And some folks disagreed on that and, and created some separate denominations. And um, then we realized the error of our ways and, and began to, to join back together again. And, and since, since, you know, 1939, we've been doing this process of joining together. And this is a time of pruning again that we are, we are coming back to for people to follow where, where they are, are led, but to also allow us to continue to move forward in the, the prophetic work that the Methodist movement has always been about. Um, you know, even John Wesley's revival movement was not a, a full referendum on the Anglican church. He no. never, he was always Anglican. Right. He didn't, he right, didn't, right, right. It, it was unlike a lot of other reformations where it's, they've gotten it wrong and now we've got something right. to, to offer. You know, John Wesley just said, no, we've, we've lost our way a little bit, not, not in our theology, not in our practice, but in the way that, that we live, the way that we lead our lives. Right. <laughs> and so, and so that, you know, that that is so much of what our history and tradition is, are these Pentecost moments again mm -hmm. and again, where we, we come to realize how the Holy Spirit is moving. Um, I'm not even gonna say in new ways necessarily, but in ways that we're just beginning to realize. Mm -hmm. So. I think there's a lot uh, of things that we did wrong after the Civil War yeah. coming back together where we didn't reconcile, yep. where we didn't say, I'm sorry, where mm -hmm. we didn't apologize mm -hmm. for the sin of racism mm -hmm. that, that led to that schism. Yeah. And I'm hoping that we can do that better. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping we can be like the brothers in the Old Testament who laid up their altar and bless one another on their way. Mm -hmm. and, and you go and be prosperous because there are people who are gonna feel more comfortable in, in that denomination. Right. And I want to honor that. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be people that are feel more comfort, comfortable in the United Methodist Church and at St. Luke's because we want to honor that because it's Pentecost and we all mm -hmm. need to speak in different languages, mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. And I what? think that's the power of the Holy Spirit in the church today. I think uh, going back and owning our wrong and hoping to move forward is not something that is necessarily practiced in the culture. Right. And isn't the church called to, uh, called and empowered to be an example in a way, right? To, 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 to live into kingdom principles. Um, so yeah. Yeah. At the center of the Sermon on the Mount mm -hmm. is Lord's Prayer. And at the center of the Lord's Prayer is forgive others right. as you are forgiven. Right. And right. yeah, I think and we need to learn to do that. In a world where, I, and I think it's kind of a human reflex to just want to cover up the wrong that's been done and kind of move forward that way. It is a kingdom principle to go against that completely and uncover the wrong and say, hey, this was my wrong. I am sorry. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And, and, and I think that to do that faithfully, we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Right. When, whenever we, whenever I teach confirmation and, 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 and partnership, we just talked about this recently of, you know, the, the, um, the, the, the importance of tradition as part of our quadrilateral tradition is tradition is not just about carrying on traditions. No. It's about knowing your tradition and talking about the traditions where you've gotten it wrong mm -hmm. and, 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 and uncovering them again and again. Again, mm -hmm. so that generation after generation, we we know the stories where we have we as the church have gotten it wrong, mm -hmm. and don't do it again because right. we're right. we're going to keep getting it wrong. Mm -hmm. That's that's just going to be the nature of, of a human institution. Mm -hmm. 
but we can get it wrong in new ways at least. <laughs> well, and it goes back to what, what some people are saying about the United Methodist Church, why they're leaving is that they've lost their, their focus on Jesus. Yeah. Um, they've lost their Christology, mm -hmm. um, which, which I, what you just said, the tradition we hold on to is that Jesus Christ is our savior yeah. who, who took our sins to the cross right. and, and, and went to the cross because of our sin and resurrected so that we might find grace. And we need to, we need to repent. And, and we believe that here at St. Luke's. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the power of repentance. We believe in the power of grace. And so honestly, I, I think being United Methodist and staying here, which will still be a big tent. Yes. There will still be people that don't agree on LGBTQ, on women, on all kinds of things. But there is grace, which means I have to dig deeper into my relationship with Jesus Christ and understand grace even more fully for my extension of being able to say I'm sorry mm -hmm. and then also offer grace to those who apologize to me. Well, I think the Pentecost, the Pentecost story is such a, a beautiful overlay for this conversation about the United Methodist Church because I'm never gonna remember which version of the story or which translation it is. But there's sort of this zoom out on the people on the street that hear them. Mm -hmm. right? And mm the amazement of those people yes. that were from other places mm -hmm. to hear their language in this place. And, and to lay that over this, for lack of a better term, breaking and the separating of the United Methodist Church, that there are going to be people that hear and experience the God that they understand in the way that they understand it, that they will find belonging and closeness with Christ and the amazement that that brings is powerful. And I, I don't think that that changes that the United Methodist Church is going to owe some people apologies mm -hmm. when this is over. It doesn't, you know, the, the idyllic picture of there will be people that hear this for the first time doesn't change that there are religions and denominations and practices in all religions, not just ours, that have done harm, right? have done harm yep. right. and that have hurt people. Right. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't take away the fact that people are finding Christ and they are finding deeper and more meaningful relationships with God right. through those religions. Well, and it's what happens in the rest of Acts. It's, I mean, what we're going through as the Methodist Church and, and a new denomination starting is what happens in Acts 15 when the Jerusalem Council came together mm -hmm. and they, they debated and discussed, do, do people who follow Christ have to be circumcised in yeah. the Jewish ways? Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and they came to a decision and, and some of them continued in that sect and some of them continued in another understanding of the church. It's, it's really, and if it can happen in the scripture and we can see that it's okay, we, we that's our foundation. If that is truly the way we look at things is, mm -hmm. is through scripture illuminated by, his, by tradition, mm -hmm. reason, and experience, we go, oh, this is, this is scriptural, what's happening, and it's, mm -hmm. we're going to be okay. And in the beginning, some followed Paul and some followed Apollos. Right. And, I mean, I mean right. it's, it, this isn't new. <laughs> Correct. Right, right. Yeah. And, and so what, what we want everyone to hear, it, we have listened to the membership of the church, um, and we believe we're going to say United Methodist. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it, it really isn't up to us pastors either. As pastors have to make our own decisions, it's really up to the members or what we call partners of the church, people who have said, this is the church that I'm going to become a member of because I want to partner with the Holy Spirit through St. Luke's to lead my life and, and to reveal the kingdom of heaven. Mm. Um, and so, but right now we understand we'll stay United Methodist and live into the best of what that is. So let me ask as we leave, why are you United Methodist? Karen? Um, well, because I was brought here, right? But, <laughs> but even more so than that and, real, and more realistically and more practically, right? It's, it's rooting, right? It's, United Methodism for me has been a place where I have been able to grow deep, but that I have been able to grow tall mm. and be strengthened by the foundation that is set. My, my faith is not this tiny box that holds me in and keeps me small. It is this, it is a faith that allows me to reimagine, to reinvent, to reconsider. Um, not only who I am, but this world that God has created and to reckon with my place in it and what my role is. Um, my, for me, I don't experience other religions and other denominations that way, um, but United Methodism has given me the space to really step into the fullness of who I am um, and, and lead and to follow um, in new ways every single day. Mm -hmm. Anyone else? I also was born into Methodism, um, many generations deep, but I also was, I was blessed to, to grow up in a congregation that nurtured me and loved the heck out of me and knew me. And I had this incredible community that took care of me and walked with me and, and still, you know, thanks to social media gets to celebrate with, with me. But what, what kept me United Methodist and what was so powerful for me was <coughs> as, as I grew and particularly as a teenager and a youth, I got involved in, in conference things. I got involved in the connectional world where I was not just in relationship with that congregation, again, wonderful nurturing congregation, um, but, but it, it opened a world to me where I was in relationship with people from all over my region and then all over the country and then all over the world. And, and so it, it's interesting that, that one of our challenges right now is the fact that we're connectional and global, that, that is right. making it harder to move forward. Right. But it's the, it's the, it is also the reason that I'm United Methodist is, is I, can't, I can't put blinders on and just look at my own context. I am never allowed to, to become so insular if, if I'm truly living into what we believe as United Methodists. I do always have to have that zoomed out global view mm -hmm. because by being here, I am related to people everywhere, so. Mm -hmm. um, I'd say that I um, am United Methodist. I remember being at Cookman, which is United Methodist affiliated, um, and seeing a, a, a little pamphlet for a, a Methodist seminary that said faith and intellect. Uh, and I remember being like uh, something in me being sparked by that. And that same summer I came and had an internship at St. Luke's and seeing that pamphlet was just like the image of that pamphlet was burned in my mind. 
and I founded St. Luke's in my first experience with United Methodism, a space where those two parts of me, faith and intellect, that I had previously felt were at war. So it's kind of like what you're saying, mm-hmm. uh, carrying that space to grow and reimagine th- those parts of myself that I previously felt were at war and my embedded theology and the uh, theology that I grew up with didn't have space for both of those things in that way. Um, and so in that and in this faith tradition, um, I've just... I've just found it to be the place where I found my call most nurtured. I found Mm. the way that I commune with God and commune in Christian community to be uh, most readily accessible and 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 celebrated. Um, And so that's that's what keeps me United Methodist. That's what. Yeah, that's And I think it's fair. You're the only person up here who didn't grow up United Methodist, too, which is also fascinating. Right. I think I'm United Methodist for all the reasons that people are coming to the United Methodist Church because of now. Mm. Uh, uh, A Jesus who is complicated and expansive, Mm -hmm. um, which who holds my complications (laughs) and expansiveness. uh, And then the tension, the tension that John Wesley held for us through personal holiness and social holiness, through believing and doing, through faith and works and a grace that is a continual movement from before it, before I got involved in it <laughs> that starts with God working in me and then I claim it and then we claim it together with the Holy Spirit. Um, it's those reasons. I think for me, it's really the, the orthodoxy that allows for what I would love to claim back in our, our, our lexicon, an evangelical religion, right. an evangelical faith that reaches people with good news, with mm-hmm. actual good news. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why, that's why I will always be United Methodist, even in the, in the sadness that I have with, with some of the ways we're acting um, as siblings. I pray that, that we grow up and, and we bless each other on our way. Mm-hmm. So that's who we are. Um, thanks for listening. If you ever have any questions about what's going on in the denomination, do not hesitate to reach out to any of us clergy um, or our staff. Um, Karen and Melissa and I will actually be going in November to jurisdictional conference. We're delegates from the Florida conference and we'll be voting on bishops, mm-hmm. uh, new bishops for our areas in the Southeast. And uh, we have also others who will be going to general conference in 2024, Anthony and Alice and Corey Jones. And so we're a part of it. We're, we're in the thick of it. And so if you have any questions, don't hesitate to reach out to any of us, but join us on Sunday as we celebrate Pentecost together. <laughs>